Hello and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. On our last podcast, Dr. Meenan gave us a strong inductive Bible study overview of the entire Bible, the canon of Scripture. This time, we'll go deeper into the Old Testament, what to look for, and why it's relevant to us as Christians today. Alan, good to have you back. Thanks, Kip. It's nice to be back. Now, Alan, I remember as a young boy seeing the larger-than-life movie, The Bible, which was about the Old Mm -hmm. Testament, with a particular focus on the fear of the Lord. It made quite an impression, a negative one, to be honest. Um, I was terrified of this God of, uh, of course, it was a movie, not the word, but the Old Testament does feel quite brutal in many ways. And then there is the New Testament, which seems to be the antithesis of that, uh, with its strong focus on love and redemption. So how do we reconcile that fear-love relationship today? Why is the Old Testament important for Christians to consider? Uh, Wouldn't the New Testament suffice? You know, Kip, it's kind of interesting that I, I remember that movie as well. I thought it was a ghastly movie. Um, <laughs> and it didn't get very far you know, along in the story. I think you know, it, the, the ambition was to get through the entire Bible, but I think they got bogged down with some of the stories of Abraham and Noah. And I don't think, I don't, I don't even know that they got into, out of, out of Genesis. Um, I, don't, I don't remember even a, a Moses figure in that movie. So it was hardly the Bible. You know, it could have been just Genesis. It, was, it wasn't a very good movie. But anyway, back to your question. I, I, don't, um, I don't remember. So, and I'm a little afraid to go back and watch again. You know, I have to have that fear. <laughs> yeah, I do remember it. And, and it, it just uh, it felt flat for me. But mm. be that as it may, um, the Old Testament and New Testament belong together for Christians, of course because one really completes the other. And it's important to understand that the New Testament just didn't come into being you know, by itself. It emerged out of the Old Testament, and, yeah. and that's kind of exciting. I remember years ago when I was a, a student at Edinburgh University, uh, one of the professors who you know, was always kind of, he was a kind of Groucho Marx kind of character, you know, and, um, mm. and he had his little, little pipe, and. I remember one day, you know, he was always cracking jokes and always trying to be humorous. And he uh, he came over with his little pipe and he said, uh, he said, um, 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 Mr. Meenan, um, um, I've just been reading, in his lovely Scottish accent, of course, <laughs> I've just been reading a, a, a great, a great introduction to the um, to the uh, to the uh, New Testament. It's 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 called uh, the the Old Testament. it's kind of weird but you know in a sense that's really very profound you know it's uh i think one scholar uh, in in particular said the old testament should be called the older testament Mm. rather than the old testament because you know the the there are lines of continuity that that continue from old testament into new testament you know there's um there's a a misconception among so many Christians today that uh, what we have is the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace. Right. And therefore, hence, you're concerned about the fear of God and the love of God. 
as, as two entities, two concepts that are juxtaposed. Mm. But in reality, the Old Testament is full of grace. And it's not fair to call the Old Testament law and the New Testament grace. Um, because, you know, in the, in the Exodus event, uh, before you ever get to the legal requirements of the law, it's all about grace. It's all about deliverance. It's all about forgiveness. It's all about creating a new people to himself. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the two belong together. You can't have one without the other. You know, it's love and marriage. You know that song, love and marriage, can't have one without the other? Well, it's the same with the Testaments. You can't have one without the other. One, one emerges from the other. One basically lays the foundation for the other. Well, do you think that the Old Testament is relegated to sort of a secondary status in Christian preaching today? You know, I, I do actually, and, and I find that incredibly um, sad um, because some of the greatest sermons I have ever heard preached are sermons from the Old Testament. In fact, um, some of the finest sermons I've heard were preached by James S. Stewart, who ironically was professor of New Testament at Edinburgh University before I got there. Um, hailed as one of the greatest preachers of our day. But his Old Testament uh, sermons were just immensely wonderful. But the Old Testament is full of, of these kind of amazing stories that, you know, like, um, you know, the story of King Asa, um, who is, goes out to war against the Ethiopians and, you know, is outnumbered, oh, I don't remember how many, you know, 10 to 1 or more. And there's he's no way that he can extricate himself from the battle. There is no way that, uh, that Judah can win this battle. I mean, there's just, it's, um, it's a foregone conclusion with an overwhelming army that has marched on. Um, and they meet at a place called Murashah in the Shvala of Israel, the, the lowlands of Israel. And as the uh, Israeli army is putting together its its armor and brave men are around the campfire waiting for the dawn to break, waiting for the for the um, the watchman to cry, the night is over, you know, it's time to go to war. They all look, look around for the king and he's not there. And they discover that he's been on his belly all night praying to God. Oh Lord, he says, we rest on thee and in your name we go against this great multitude. And he got up, come out of his tent, mounted his horse, gave the signal for the attack. And by the grace of God, something amazing happened. They overwhelmed the forces of Ethiopia. Now, that is just, you know, you, 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 could, that, that's a, you could preach a sermon on that, you know, facing overwhelming obstacles. And what you do is you just, you kneel before God and you say, Asa's prayer. Lord, we rest on you. And in your name we go against this great multitude. The Old Testament is replete with these kind of stories, you know. Jehoshaphat uh, going out to battle against the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Termites and all the others, you know, and on the Valley of Ziz. And God sent a prophet and said, you don't have to fight this battle. You just take your, your position, stand firm, see what God is going to do. And he sends in the choir. And the choir just marched towards the enemy camp singing praises to God. And the, 
Parasites and the Hivites and the Hittites and the, all the other ites, the Amorites and what have you, they all got confused with the singing. Can you imagine a choir like that? <laughs> I, I can, if I was and singing they just, <laughs> And they just, they, they, they scarpered, they ran. And, um, and Jehoshaphat won that battle without even lifting a weapon. I mean, you can't beat that. I mean, that, that's better than Hollywood. I mean, that's just great stuff. I remember when I was an undergraduate uh, in Belfast, there was one day I was outside the library and there were a couple of, of, of Christian friends who were just talking and they were telling stories from the Old Testament. I remember one was about Ezekiel, you know, and God had come to Ezekiel and said, Ezekiel, the great, terrible things are going to happen to my people and I want you to tell them, I want you to forewarn them. And, and as a sign of this, I'm going to take away the desire of your eyes. That's, that was, he, they, God called his wife the desire of his eyes, which mm. was a beautiful thing to call her. And, and that evening, um, his wife passed away. She died. And he went out the next day to, to tell the people that terrible things were, were coming their way because of their sin. And I remember listening to my friend, and I remember thinking to myself, is, there, is that story in the Old Testament? Goodness. You know, as I listened to my friends, I, I, I decided to tune my heart to the Old Testament and to get to know these stories and to get to know God's, about God's actions um, in, in, in history. And it was transforming for me. So yeah, I, 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 the Old Testament is often relegated to a secondary uh, position. And, and it's such a shame because it's, there's so much rich stuff there that I wish uh, the church would utilize and, and speak about more, more often. Well, let's talk about how God speaks to us in the Old Testament um, or through the Old Testament. Obviously, in the Old Testament, God spoke to uh, people directly. He spoke through dreams and various other, other ways. But, but how does God speak to us today through the Old Testament, do you think? That's a great question. You know, I think um, one scholar, his name was G. Ernest Wright, wrote a book, the title of which I believe was The God Who Acts. And his major thesis was this. We can really only know God through his actions in history. Now, when you think about that, that makes an awful lot of sense because um, that's really how you know anybody. If, if someone said to you, for example, that they were kind and, and nice and wonderful people, that's a word action. But if you, you know, if they left and, and you followed them out onto the street and there was a little old lady trying to cross the street and this person took the umbrella and hit her over the head with it, then you would reckon that the word actions were a lie. And in fact, he was none of the things that he said. So you would be adjudicating his person, uh, the knowledge of him, by his actions. And so G. Ernest Wright insisted that the, the way that we know God is through his actions. And nowhere more clearly, I think, is God active than in the, in the Old Testament in the New Testament as well, of course, and primarily and ultimately and finally in the person of Jesus, of course. Mm. But, but um, you know, the Old Testament is, uh, much of it is history, as you know. I mean, 17 books of the 39 books are, uh, are history books. They, uh, they tell the story from creation to uh, the exile and the return of Israel. It's the story of God interacting. It's what, it's what the Germans like to call Heilsgeschicht. And Heilsgeschicht, literally, we would translate it in English, salvation history. It, it is God's history. It's 
his story, so to speak, history, his story, of all that God has done in history, it is from those actions that we deduce who he is, his nature, his character, and so on. But it's a little more difficult to comprehend, maybe. I understand the whole the holistic approach to the Bible, but the the Old Testament is so different than the New Testament. How do we, how, what's the best way to understand it? I mean, it is different, but, uh, you know, the, you're right. I mean, uh, there are 39 books in the Old Testament. And by the way, the way I often uh, say, that's easy to remember because the word old has got three letters in it and the word testament has got nine ah, letters in it. So that's good. Old Testament's 39, 39 books, easy to remember until someone says, well, the New Testament has got <laughs> three and nine. In which case I say, but in the New Testament, you have to multiply them together and you get 27, which is 27 books in the ah, New Testament. That's good. So anyway, um, yeah, it's kind of fun. But um, I think to understand um, the Old Testament, you know, you, you need to understand, first of all, that these 39 books cover a huge period of time. Um, Whereas New Testament, obviously, all the New Testament was written within you know, a relatively short period of time. And you have 17 books of history, you have 17 books of prophets, and in between you've got five books of wisdom. So the historical books tell a different story from the wisdom books. And the wisdom books tell a different story from the prophetic books, which tell a different story from the historical books. And, and it's exciting. I mean, so exciting that Hollywood has made lots of movies. No, it's very entertaining those, to read. Yeah, stories. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The prophetic books, by contrast, um, unless you're able to ground them and, and, and apply them or, or, or connect them to, the, to what is going on within the nation of history at a given period of time. Uh, so in other words, if you can connect the prophetic books to the historical books, they make just a lot more sense. Otherwise, if you read the prophetic books divorced from the historical books, you know, what you're looking at is kind of blessed little thoughts. You know, you're kind of picking out little verses that bless your heart, um, which is not the purpose and message of the prophetic books. But for example, Jeremiah, when he's writing, he's writing basically at a time when uh, Judah is in its last legs. And the nation is up against the wall, and, and Jeremiah is trying to call them back to God and telling them to depend upon God uh, for their salvation. Whereas they're looking, for, they're looking to Egypt and they're looking to Babylon for their savior instead of to, to God, and they forsake God. And one of the, one of the amazing verses in the Old Testament I find when, when um, Jeremiah says to God, you know, God, you call yourself the fountain of living water, but I think you're just a dried up brook. Imagine saying that. Imagine saying that to God, you know, because he was so frustrated. And God, instead of tasking him or, or disciplining him for that, God says, Jeremiah, let me tell you something. If you have run with footmen and they've tired you, how are you going to cope running against horses? And if in a safe land you f keep falling in your face, how are you going to do in the jungles of the Jordan? What God was saying essentially was, I know it's hard, Jeremiah, but my word to you, unfortunately, is it's going to get worse. And what was going on, in fact, was he was complaining during the reign of Josiah. And Josiah was, a, was the last good king 
of Judah. Um, all the ones that came after him, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah, and so forth, they were, they were just, they were a mess, absolute mess. And it was during the time of Josiah that Jeremiah was saying, Lord, this is too hard. It's too hard to minister. I don't want to be a prophet. This is too difficult. You know, life, life is too hard. And, 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 and God said, you know, I'm sorry, it's going to get worse. And it did, because after Josiah, you had Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim, and so on and so forth. So being able to tie the prophetic books into the historical books enriches them and makes them much more meaningful. So looking at the Old Testament inductively, how would you encapsulate the content? Hmm. Um, good question. Um, you know, it, it, basically, the historical books form the foundation for understanding the Old Testament, uh, without question. Mm -hmm. They're basically epochs. You know, you have the, um, the creation. You've got the, 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 the period of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the epoch of bondage. And following bondage, you've got the wilderness wanderings and, and then the conquest and then the period of the judges and then the period of the kings and then the period of the united monarchy and the period of the divided monarchy and the surviving monarchy and, and, and so on. And then, then you've got the exile and then you've got the return and then you've got 400 years of silence before the New Testament. So that basically forms the foundation for the whole, the whole concept. And, and what I've mentioned in the past podcast is that when Jesus came into the world I think it was incredibly significant that he he said repent for the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of God is at hand and I also think it's incredibly significant that no one is recorded as having asked him what on earth are you talking about so this idea of the kingdom of God one sees it dramatically throughout the Old Testament and everything, I think, within the Old Testament relates to that. Even the wisdom writings relate to that in the quest for understanding, the quest for the understanding of life, of love, of suffering, of pain, of worship, um, and so on. The Old Testament is ancient history. Uh, it's thousands of years. This is history that happened thousands of years ago. Yeah. Um, how is that still relevant today? I mean, I mean, who cares about King Jehoshaphat and these other ancient luminaries, right? It's, it's because of how God has interacted with them. Uh, when, you know, when my uh, three daughters were very young, um, I, would, I would on occasion have the opportunity to tuck them into bed when I wasn't at a church meeting or whatever. And ordinarily, you know, you, you read them a book of uh, Humpty Dumpty or... Alice in Wonderland, or whatever the case might be, or even you know, if you graduate to to stories like um, the Chronicles of Narnia, it's one thing. But I just told them bedtime stories uh, from the Bible, from the Old Testament. I mean, mm. you know, I, I told them stories of uh, the familiar stories of David and Moses and what have you. But you know, after a time, you run out of those the well-worn stories, you know, that everybody knows. And so I started finding, you know. People like uh, King Jehoshaphat and King Asa, and, and of course, you know, <laughs> it was it was it was a lot of fun. But I don't think these are historical figures, you know, tucked away or stuck away in in these ancient writings, uh, so much as um, vibrant, exciting stories of how God has dealt with human beings over the years 
and that lays the foundation for our understanding of how God works today in our lives and in the lives of others and what we can anticipate and expect of God uh, in the future. But then like a book like Leviticus, how, how do we, how do you tell that story <laughs> to a you child know, at <laughs> night when they go to bed? Well, there's, <laughs> Leviticus isn't a, isn't a story per se. Um, you know, the Leviticus is uh, one of the five books of the law, but you know, it's kind of interesting because many times, you know, as a New Year's resolution, people will say, oh, this is the year I'm going to read through the Bible. And I'll say, well, good for you, you know, uh, let me know how that goes, you know. And, <laughs> and uh, when we get, say, midway through January into the third week or whatever, you know, how's that going? Well, um, I said, have you stopped? <laughs> yeah. Uh, how far did you get? Well, we got as far as Leviticus. <laughs> 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 you know, it's not the most popular uh, book in, in the Bible, but I've got to tell you, Leviticus is really a fascinating book. And when you look at it inductively, um, mm. it begins to, you know, and you draw a chart of it, as, as I have done, uh, you begin to see things emerge from the text that is incredibly exciting. Um, and, and you begin to see that everything seems to revolve around chapter 16. Chapter 16 relates um, uh, the requirements of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And so it lies at the very heart of the, uh, of the book. And the interesting thing is that, that on either side of it, there are what I call reflections, um, similarities. Um, it's kind of like uh, the chapter 16 is a mirror, and you're looking at it from one side and seeing the other side. And chapters 1 through 15 are preparatory in terms of, you know, since the whole concept is, is the day of atonement, you know, and atonement, of course, means that we become one with God. At one meant atonement. Uh, reconciliation between humankind and God, and there's nothing more important than that. And it, it, it lies at the very core and heart of this book, chapter 16. So basically the book is telling us, up until 16, is telling us how one prepares for this, in, in, this incredible reality that we can be one with God. And then after chapter 16, having become one with God, having atoned, having uh, been reconciled to God, what that looks like and how we maintain that relationship in chapters uh, 17 and following. So when one reads it with that in mind and sees this kind of reflection, it's kind of a strange structural book because whereas most books, you know, have kind of, you know, a section, you know, maybe Paul's epistles, for example, have a section on, on doctrine and then a section on practical application, uh, what we call uh, doctrine and ethics, perhaps. Um, this book actually kind of uh, revolves around its center, Leviticus. Um, so each book, even though it may, it may appear to be off-putting or overwhelming, when you look at it inductively and you see the structure and you, you begin to understand whoever put it together, whoever wrote it, um, uh, whoever redacted it, uh, whoever was responsible in any way for its final form, that in coming together with that final form, it comes together with a special uh, understanding that the writer or the writers or redactors, whomever, are, are uh, piecing it to give it 
particular meaning. And, and in Leviticus, it's all about holiness and the, the ultimate charge, be you holy as I, the Lord, am holy. Um, so it's a call to holiness. And, and perhaps there is no greater call in the world today than for Christians to live lives of, uh, of obedience as the Lord commands. It's great stuff. Hey, I, I think it sounds like a great bedtime story. I think you should convert it into a kid's book, and that would be a wonderful. <laughs> Leviticus, the bedtime story, perfect. Let's talk about the significance of the different types of literature. We, uh, we talked in the last podcast a bit about this, the poetry, history, prophecy, and so on. Um, are, they, are these to be understood differently? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Um, that's not to say that, you know, parts of the Old Testament are more important than others. It's just that the writers um, are using different genre to communicate their message. And that's what inductive Bible study is, what we do in The Word is Out. I mean, we help people identify the kind of material that's being used, first of all, because it's important to understand what kind of material is being used, if it's biographical material, if it's historical material, if it's chronological material, geographical material, or ideological material, because that makes a difference. And then we've talked about structure already and how the book may be structured. But the genre or the, or the literary type is, is of great importance because sometimes um, these writers will, will use um, uh, discourse, for example. Because in discourse, um, it's basically they're expressing their ideas logically, so the appeal is to the uh, to the human mind. Mm. Um, and then uh, you know, then there's apart from discourse, you've got prose uh, genre, um, which is basically what I've mentioned: salvation history. It's 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 storytelling, uh, and in many ways, it's different from discourse because uh, in discourse, every single word may have may be laden with pregnancy in terms of its meaning. Whereas in prose, the details may not be significant for the understanding because this is a story of, of, uh, of salvation history. Um, and, and so the appeal there would not be to the mind so much as, as it would be to the imagination. And then a writer will use poetry to appeal to emotion, appeal to the heart, because um, you know nothing can strike a chord as much as uh, as poetry, and then others will yeah. use drama, uh, so that kind of sucks you into the story, and you become part of the uh, of the story in a sense. You begin to empathize with what's going on. The appeal is uh, is to engagement, um, and and you know that may or may not be historical, for example. You know, so uh, and then beyond that, there's uh, parabolic uh, material. Uh, you know, we would say that when Jesus spoke in parables, there are also parables in the in the um, in the Old Testament, quite a number of them, and and basically their purpose is to communicate spiritual truth uh, through story, through illustration, mm -hmm. and then of course you you've got the literary type which is uh, apocalyptic, and we have apocalyptic stuff in Old Testament, the Book of Daniel, the Book of Ezekiel, for example. Each writer chooses a particular genre for a particular purpose to convey a particular message. It behooves us to understand what genre he's using, why he's using it, what he's communicating, how he's communicating it, and therefore what is the meaning of what he's communicating. 
as you teach pastors across Africa, um, Asia, and so on, do these do these ideas hold up for them? Does do, do, does this make sense to them as you teach this? Um, <laughs> I wish I could answer that definitively and say, <laughs> "Oh, yes, certainly, certainly, they understand." These should be universal themes, shouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about um, inductive study, first of all, is that um, there is much in other cultures that grasps hold of the concepts more easily than we do in the West. And that, I think, is certainly true in Asia and Africa, mm. because we live in a culture that is um, uh, sectioned. Compartmentalized? Compartmentalized, that's a better word, yes, compartmentalized. Everything is compartmentalized. Now, um, it was Gassault who said that the whole is always greater than the sum of its parts. Now, think about that for a moment. If that's Gestaltian theory, and I happen to believe it, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. If you're just looking at the little parts, then you're going to miss, you know, if you're looking at individual trees, you're going to miss the impact of the forest. What I find, although it's changing, I must confess, with Western influence, but what I've found in traveling uh, around the world in particular in Africa and also in Asia, they have a holistic view of life. Everything is connected to everything else. Mm. They, they don't compartmentalize the way we do. Um, and so when you begin to, to talk about, let's, let's try to you know, look at the entire, this entire entity in its, in its wholeness, uh, a particular book, for example, um, to determine what the message of the entire book is, in a sense, then, you know, they, they can grasp hold of that idea much more readily than we can. Much more readily. Um, so in that sense, uh, they have an advantage that we do not have. Um, but when it comes to understanding uh, literary genre, um, yeah, I think this is, this is kind of universal. There's nothing unique. There's nothing particular, particularly Western about this. In fact... You remember that we're looking at a book that is not a Western book. The right. Bible is not a Western book. The Bible is, in fact, a Middle Eastern book. So, yeah, I, th I think what we're doing is we're drawing principles um, of, of communication, of expression, that everybody uses in one form or another. And, you know, what we're trying to do is identify them and then apply them to the text and say, now, what, what is the writer particularly using in this instance and how can we best understand it? Well, as we wrap up, one final question. Are some parts of the Old Testament more useful or important than others? And you know, what should our focus be? Or where should our focus be? That's a difficult question in many ways. I, I think uh, it's all important. Um, I want to say it's all important because it's all God's word. And nothing is, nothing is there by accident. And I, I, I would stress the importance of the fact that nothing is, is in the scriptures there by accident. It's all got a purpose. So in that sense, it's all useful and it's all helpful. But uh, for example, um, I find it fascinating that uh, um, the chronicler in the book of Chronicles, uh, in relating the story of David, completely omits David's affair with Bathsheba. Hmm. He does not mention it. He doesn't mention it. It's there in Kings, 
but it's not there in Chronicles. So we want to know why. Why does the chronicler deliberately omit one of the amazing, terrible events right. in David's life? Or again, um, in, in reading Genesis 1, we're all familiar with Genesis 1. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and, and so on. But, you know, when he's creating the universe, uh, when you get to verse 16 of that chapter, he dismisses the creation of the universe in five words. And he also made stars. That's it. That's it. So I ask myself, if he dismisses the creation of the universe in five words, obviously that's not important to him. So maybe Genesis 1 is not so much about creation as it is about something else, and I'm convinced it is about something else. It's not about creation. It's actually about the creator, God. And that's why he so dismisses creation. I mean, you consider this subject that, that, has, that has fascinated human beings for centuries, in the Bible, it's dismissed in five single words. And so these are the, I mean, it's important to ask questions like, what is here? Why is it here? What difference does it make? Why is it not elsewhere? Roger Kipling, um, the English poet, uh, had a little ditty that I always love, if I can remember it. Um, I have six faithful serving men who taught me all I know. Their names are what and where and when and how and why and who. And I think Roger Kipling has got it right. You know, it's a matter of asking the what, the where, the when, the why, the who, and so on. Um, and, and that's what, you know, that's what we need to, to be asking. Um, why did a particular writer tell this story? Why did he omit this story? Why did he, why does he spend in Genesis 11 chapters, out of 50 chapters, 11 on the origin of the entire world, and 39 chapters on the origin of one nation? That tells you right there what's important to him. So when we talk about is some material more important than others, what we need to understand is what is important to the mind of the writer. And that's what we do in inductive Bible study. Uh, you have Adam and Eve, and then you have uh, their sons, Cain and Abel, and uh, Abel is murdered, and Cain is set free. And everyone wonders, who did Cain marry? Mm -hmm. Okay. That's a reasonable question. But isn't it interesting that the biblical writer is just not interested in that? <laughs> He's not interested. He doesn't care. And therefore, because he doesn't care, I don't care either. Because it's, he doesn't, if he doesn't address it, it's not important to him. It's not important to the theological uh, continuing story of this marvelous book that we call the Old Testament. So don't get hung up on it. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. Well, thank you, Dr. Alan Meenan, for another enlightening and motivating discussion. You've been listening to The Word is Out, a podcast on a mission featuring Dr. Alan Meenan. If you'd like to know more about The Word is Out, visit us online at www.thewordisout.com. You can also keep up to date through our Facebook page. We'll be back with another podcast soon.